0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Tonight we'll have small groups in about a half an hour. And uh, in particular tonight, I thought it might be nice for us to kind of go right to the thick of it. How, our, how the mental activity, constantly spinning, our likes and dislikes, our hopes, our fears, our opinions, our impressions, all of this endless meaning-making, which is nature, so it's not bad, but it definitely can cast a real spell in the sense of appearing... To be somebody, (laughs) me or you, right? So I thought it might be nice in the small groups to, in particular, to look at mental activity and just our own experience of acknowledging, you know, in that small group context, how moments of mental activity, how compelling or convincing it is that that's me talking to me. It doesn't seem impersonal at all. Feels as personal, you know, as anything can be. And then you might have examples of noticing mental activity in a less personal way. Right? So what and then what supports that? That kind of loosening up of how the mind how wisdom in the mind understands mental activity. It seems to support a fresher, a newer look where it's seen more as a movement of nature as opposed to my thought, my understanding. And the nice thing, it really shifts so much in how we practice as an insight around what mental activity is because until we start to develop that insight that mental activity it's just what it is and it's not more than what it is right it's thought being known or mental activity being known but it's not more than that with that insight then it really shifts how we practice cuz before that insight begins to develop we can't help you know what regardless of what the teacher says or the what we're studying it really feels like I gotta get in control of this mind because it's it's wild, it's problematic, and um, it just feels like uh, I need to work with it in this very direct, muscular kind of way, parental way. But we would only do that if it felt like it was personal. So I have to. Personally, deal with myself because I'm off. I'm misbehaving. I shouldn't be thinking this way. Why is that thought coming up? This is not what I should be thinking about. Please pay attention to this. Why are you disobeying me? Right. So it's there's a lot of practice, right? That characterizes a lot of our practice, doesn't it? And uh, even when it you know, when we rightly sense how frustrating, how much that doesn't work, we don't have a better way. We think somehow I'm not trying hard enough or I, they haven't given me the right instructions yet like about how to control the mind. And uh, so it can be really frustrating. But it, it begins to shift where we realize it's not about controlling the mind or controlling mental activity, It's really about not forgetting what mental activity is. So that's more the effort to notice the mental activity and to not forget what it is. Well, it's just that mental activity being known, just that emotion being felt, just this thing we call the body being felt, sounds being heard. And even if if that way of practicing triggers a real life, this seems so stupid. Where would, how could this be helpful, right? We would just do the practice with that. Oh, that, that's doubt, mental activity being known. And if there's a feeling, a visceral feeling with that doubt, like, I'm totally screwed here, like a heaviness, oh, that's just that feeling being felt. So it's, it's uh giving the mind over to this wisdom that deconstructs. And the, the, th- the reason we can get in that groove is because it really aligns with experience. It really works. Experience is never more than these six things being known. You will never, You can. this is a challenge for homework, and even right now, can you ever experience... Have you ever experienced, can you ever experience something that isn't honestly best described by one of these six things being known? And you might say, like someone might raise their hand and say, there was this moment on top of the mountain and the clouds moved and the sun came and this feeling arose of just being part of the whole, the totality of the world. That's not one of those six sense gates being known, right? I mean, that would be or the moment you fell in love or the moment you had a near-death experience or the moment, you know, just these more peak moments that people might point to that seem so much more than hearing being known, seeing being known, thinking being known, smell and taste being known, and whatever else I'm forgetting, touches being known, sensation being known. And it can feel almost like that's so insulting to train, like uh, somehow anybody who would practice that way or encourage someone to practice that way, they're being so dismissive of the richness of life. But in our practice, the, the basic path is that the Buddha sort of suggests, If you train your heart to come into alignment with the way things are, then a lot of freedom, a lot of love, a lot of skill will arise with that alignment. If instead we live out of alignment or disconnected from the way things are, then trouble will follow us everywhere. That Freedom comes with aligning with the truth of our experience. Not the truth of some philosophical construct, but the actual truth of what our experience is revealing right here and now. So check out that model. And there's a really beautiful story, and I, sent, I think I sent this out last week's email, Megia, <coughs> this, you kind of imagine, I forget if they say, but, you get a sense that he's a younger monk, maybe even a novice, and he's uh, attending to the Buddha. And you might think, well, boy, that's kind of cool, being a senior monk, he gets someone to take care of you. But it's really more mentoring. If that's really what that relationship is all about. So, you know, Magiya being the attendant to the Buddha before he walks into town to get his food for the day. He asks permission and the Buddha gives him permission and as he's walking back from going to the village, collecting the food in his alms bowl, walking back, he sees a beautiful mango grove and he thinks, I know how this goes, right, because they're all the senior people. They sat down under a tree, they realize the truth and then they become special. That's what I want. So when he gets back to where the Buddha is and has his meal. He says to the Buddha, I don't know if hopefully some of you read it, but, you know, hey, there's a beautiful mango grove. Seems like I should go there and exert. You know, you don't need me. You've already done your work. You're already free. So let me do my work. And the Buddha says, no, you should hang around until there's somebody else here with me. And he asked three times. It's sort of magic. If you ask three times, But the Buddha, you can tell by how the Buddha, at least how it's recorded, how he responded. It's like, uh, as you are talking about exertion, what can I say? Do what you think is now time to do. So of course he went, and the and the thing is, it's like we have these idealistic notions. Oh, I get it. It's about non-attachment. So I'm going to sit down in this mango grove, or I'll, you know, and I'll just go right there. But what do we find? we find a mind that's all over the place and probably a body, bodily sensations, all over the place, like all the cumulative tensions in the body that we've picked up over a lifetime. right? Anybody not feel that tonight? tonight? right? We feel that complexity of tension in the body. We feel the momentum of the thinking, worrying, planning, whatever mind doing Everything that it's inclined to do because of all that momentum, and it triggers that parent that wants feels like the appropriate move is to get this thing under control. You know how human beings we love it, it's like English gardens. I mean, I know it's <laughs> particular cultural expression of order. But one way or another, we like to get things ordered, organized. Because it helps modify from an egoic point of view, it helps modify that you know, semi-conscious understanding of mortality. You know, that I'm not actually in control. I'm born and I'll die and I don't get it and so but at least i can you know have my bathroom clean or i can have my garden row straight or curved or whatever your thing is right so it doesn't have to be sort of you know western cultural order it could be some other version of order but it will be some parental move so we feel safe so instead with this We're we're specifically not trying to organize or govern. We're realizing this is being known. And as we see what's being known, we're seeing the endlessness of it, the impingement of the, the next thing being known and then the next thing. And has that ever ended? And there's always the next experience lined up and then the next experience. And it's endless and we, the more we're able to relax and trust our experience, the more we really get how ungovernable it is. And I like that word ungovernable, unreliable, because it really points to all three of the three characteristics that we've been studying since the summer. Right, we studied impermanence in the summer, those of you who were in that course. And then in the fall, dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature. And now here in the winter, the impersonal nature, anatta. So these really aren't three different characteristics. They're really talking about the underlying nature of phenomena, that it's natural, it's uh, arising and passing according to the complexity of cause and effect, which can't be completely read with our limited sensitivity but we can sense how things are lawful they don't happen randomly things are unfolding in this natural and impersonal way and it can't be governed and and what that that's like a very particular dharma medicine because notice as you do these kinds of contemplation like if you really work with the six sense gate meditation this week or maybe even for several weeks now. Where you just, And then during daily life too, just keep, oh yeah, that's just thoughts. Thoughts being known. Feelings being felt. Seeing being seen. Hearing being heard. And uh, and realizing the ungovernableness and it, it really evokes a deep dispassion in the way the it's talked about in the early Buddhist tradition as there's nothing here for me. So in terms of the world in terms of the world of my experience, in terms of what we mostly, you know, with a, a worldly mind see as mine, my life, my experience, my circumstance this budding realization of there's nothing here for me there's nothing here worthy of grasping. There's nothing here that can be ground for self. So that dispassion, it's a very poignant movement toward freedom. But it's very poignant because it's, it's the beginning of the death of wrong view. <laughs> right? Wrong view, self-view has to die you know and it's as real as anything is real it's also a natural process of course that wrong understanding that habit of framing things in terms of me but the more we study the underlying nature of our experience the more what arises what wisdom arises with wisdom is there's nothing here for me there's nothing here that's stable or satisfying or that can be mine, can be owned, can be self. It's me or mine. I, me, or mine. So the letting go is never something you or I have to do. So just take that off our list, like i got to learn how to let go. Letting go is something that happens when the sensitive heart, the sensitive mind comes into alignment with the way it is then letting go happens. So if you notice that you're really attached, there's no reason to not like yourself or think you're a bad Buddhist because it's just a natural phenomena. Of course there's attachment. With wrong understanding, there's going to be attachment. And then if there's right understanding, wise understanding, then there's no attachment. So, when we notice attachment, when we notice we're clinging, then it just should beg the question or oh, wonder where, here and now, in this moment, I wonder where, how attachment's happening. Can it come into view? Can I bring, can I sense where that is happening? Where the mind is seeing permanence when there's impermanence? is seeing satisfaction when it's not really in a lasting way satisfying. Seeing self, me, I, me, or mine, when it's just impersonal. How is that happening right now? Right, And there are these very subtle deep habits like not being good enough can feel personal, worthy of attachment, or feeling better than. So basically conceit Any kind of conceit, even thinking I'm the same as. These are subtle things that generally go unseen. And there are more obvious kinds of attachments, really wanting something to happen. You know, you might have feel like you have some skin in the game about what happens with the Iowa caucuses, you know. And you're deeply grateful to have this class, so you're not watching the news way before anybody knows anything. (laughs) That's just one of the most poignant kinds of suffering. (laughs) Watching people talk about things when they don't have anything to talk about. So we'll go to 10 tonight. (laughs) And you know what's going to happen? Nothing will be resolved. We still won't know what's going to happen but like that's an interesting attachment isn't it because i think it's interesting because i think it's one of those things where we might actually have an attachment like could be the attachment i really need to know i really want to know who's going to win it really matters who wins but we can feel like we can deconstruct that and and we might even really pop the whole projection of self, of I, me, or mine around this, like whatever your political leanings might be. Um, And so we'll go from noticing the congealing and the heaviness because of attachment and having an opinion and having desire, attachment to desire, and then it pops. And then it's still the Iowa caucuses it still might be curious to see what happens, but there's no psychic weight, no skin in the game. There's nothing here for me. Now, nothing here for me is not the same as I don't care or that one scenario might lead to more suffering and another ser- scenario to less suffering for people. Right? It just means that even... The arising of tremendous suffering and the minimizing, the alleviation of suffering, even that is just that being known. So experience, we really, we know this deeply, right? Experience can absolutely be misunderstood and be experienced as I, me, or mine. Anybody not deeply suffer in their life? (laughs) I mean, anybody not have experience that felt really beautiful or heavy, difficult? Yeah, all of us, I'm sure. The, The question, so then, so we don't forget how impactful suffering is just because the wisdom deepens and we learn how to be in the world of happiness and suffering in a really light way right so you might have developed a lot of wisdom and you know you in your life you cycle through financial ruin and wonderful success and getting cancer and then getting cured and losing a loved one and this and then that but because of the maturing of your practice, your heart isn't identifying with the times of suffering and the times of happiness. It's not I, me, or mining around the pleasant times and the difficult times. But we don't forget the tendency of what our mind used to do in what everybody else most everybody else's mind is doing. So we don't lose compassion for the world because we understand that I can be in the world of happiness and unhappiness without being confused by it. Oh yeah, things are really good, there's a lot of happiness, and there's nothing here for me. Things are really bad. You know, I'm really confused in my life. Difficult habit energies are being triggered. My knee hurts. I have indigestion. And there's nothing here for me. There's no part of the mind bothering to own that difficulty. Now, I know this is hard to kind of get. But we just want to, and this is where this uh, little discourse comes in, because the Buddha You know, when Magia goes back to the Buddha and says, how amazing, (laughs) I sat down and I was attacked by my own mind, you know. Instead of goodwill, there was ill will. Instead of generosity and contentment, there was greed and wanting, you know. Instead of compassion, there was inner aggression or whatever. How amazing. You know, he was kind of stunned. He thought, you know, beautiful mango grove, I know what I'm doing, but it isn't enough to have the secret teaching, you know, attachment bad, non-attachment good, right? We all have heard the inner teaching, right? We all know clinging, not good, non-clinging, good. But it doesn't help us, so this is, if you didn't read this, this is what the... The Buddhist responds to Magiya. Magiya, in one whose awareness release, I like that. This is Ajahn Tanisaro's translation of, I think, Vamuti, that liberation. In one whose liberation, whose freedom is still immature, awareness release is still immature, five qualities bring it to maturity. So now we might want to listen, because <laughs> it's like he's going to lay something out. There is a case where a monk, a practitioner like us, has admirable people as friends, companions, and comrades, and one whose awareness release is still mature. This is the first quality that brings it to maturity. Now generally when the Buddha is talking about admirable people, he's talking about people with deep insight. And they're not so easy to come by, but we have books for sure and teachings by wise people, more than we could ever use, (laughs) In a way, it's a little confusing, but the important thing is, you know, with things like Dharma Seed and places like Common Ground, we have wise community and wise friends, and keeping close to the teachings really helps. And remember, you know, when people were lamenting that the Buddha was going to die, you know, he said. Uh, it's the teachings that are relevant, not this body, not this person. Right? It's the teaching, and it's people who have uh, developed insight from following, integrating the teachings. That's being close to that. This is the first um, quality that brings our practice to maturity. And then the second is developing virtuous behavior, so cleaning up our act. Really getting interested in the value of non-harming in our lives and really training in it and seeing danger when my mind rationalizes deviation from my value of non-harming. I'm busy. I don't have time to do this with the kind of care I'd like to do it with. I mean, this is, I think, it really gets stronger as we uh, We don't get away with as much, I think. This is a little bit magical thinking, but it seems like there's some truth to it. You know, we really commit to our practice, walk this path as best we can. And it's like, oh, I don't want to put as much thought in this email, I'm just going to get it off. But we have this sort of warning signs, mindfulness spells going off in our heart, like, This is a situation where the person could easily misinterpret. So maybe you should be really thoughtful about what you write or what you say. Because you care, because you really value not causing harm. These little things like that. And then the third factor that helps our practice mature Furthermore, one gets to hear at will, easily, without difficulty, talk that is truly sobering and conducive to the opening of awareness. Talk on modesty, contentment, seclusion, non-entanglement, arousing persistence, virtue, concentration, wisdom, release, knowledge, and vision of the way it is, things as they are. And one whose awareness release is still mature, this is the third quality that brings it to maturity. Furthermore, one keeps one's persistence, aroused for the abandoning of unskillful mental qualities right, and the taking up of skillful. So we don't pretend it doesn't matter what the mind is doing. We take deep responsibility like we would for a newborn baby. For the quality of our own heart and mind how's the mind doing what is it dwelling on is it, is it dwelling with irritation or is it dwelling with kindness is it entangled with stinginess or is it grounded in contentment and generosity is it valuing and appreciating non-harming or is it like hey this is life you know you just got to do what you got to do. Take advantage. And then now the fifth. Furthermore, one is discerning, endowed with the discernment of arising and passing away, noble, penetrating, leading to the right ending of stress. Right, so this is kind of code, this arising and passing away. Uh, it's it's code for waking up to the three characteristics. Right? So it's talking specifically about anicca impermanence arising and passing away, seeing that this moment is a movement of six things, or just simply a movement of bodily activity, a movement of mental activity being known. It's a flow one moment of something being known, another moment of something being known, another moment of something being known, and those somethings being known body, the five physical senses, and the mind. The mind is perception, feeling tone, intention, mental formations, and the knowing itself, consciousness itself. So. Seeing that flow, seeing that it's coming and going, seeing that it's unsatisfactory, seeing its personal nature, that's what leads to the letting go. Where the heart drops its habit of imagining that this is more. Every time the mind makes up meaning that it's more, this moment is more than what it is, like it's about me, or it belongs to me, or I'm back here somewhere then all of a sudden the mind has something to protect. In the same way, which is so common for us, of course, and we'll talk more about this in um, either next week or the following week, about the body as not-self, right? So when, and we do, personalize the body, then I'm afraid of aging because it's going to happen to me because I've Personalize the body, and I'm also afraid of the flu. Right? When um, most of you know when the other co-founder of Common Ground and my partner, she uh, flew to New Jersey late Saturday night, or you know e- mid-evening Saturday night. Said there was almost n- nobody. She didn't have. She walked right to the security line. Nobody was there. There were four places she could go, you know, through the machine. And she said there are a lot of people wearing masks. She was a little freaked out. I mean, not in a serious way, but just like, "Oh, that's a little weird."? Right? So you know, it's this uh, fear we have for the body because of the identification. But if we cultivate the perception that the body's nature, not self, right, it does what nature does, takes birth grows old, dies, sometimes sooner, sometimes later, sometimes this way, sometimes that way. Sometimes there's pain, sometimes there's pleasure arising in the body. I mean, it sounds crazy like, oh right, I'm not going to take the bodily experience personally. Because you absolutely can. <laughs> no one will stop you from really personalizing your experience of body. Just like you can really personalize what you think is happening in the United States or what you think is happening with the global climate or what you think your partner is doing and whether you think that's the right thing for that partner to be doing. Right? You can personalize anything and have all kinds of opinions. And the interesting question is, are you willing to check to see how that's working for you? Like, what does that set in motion for a human life, and is that what we want to set in motion—that deep, pervasive habit of personalizing things? So tonight, in the small groups, personalizing thought, just talking about how seductive mental activity is, and just normalizing it for the three, you know, for the three of you in the small group. Don't, you know, it's not like we're expecting our partners in the small group to somehow say, yeah, it's been 10 years since I've been identified with a thought. <laughs> <laughs> They're like clouds in the vast infinite space of awareness coming and going, you know. No, I mean, we, it, it's very potent for human beings to talk about identification with thought only wisdom can talk. It's only from the point of view of wisdom can we talk about how seductive mental activity is. It's a way of poking holes in the attachment, in the I- the habit of identifying with mental activity. To talk about how attached I am when this arises, when this person at work says this kind of thing to me. Then this huge solid edifice arises in my mind, and there's absolutely no space of non attachment. It's absolutely true. That person is a, and I am a, and that's like as solid and real as anything, right? So to kind of share now with a sense of wise humor, like, that's amazing, when now with a little bit sp- more space, I see that's a construction that the mind, due to habit, takes personally, and it comes with real suffering. So that's kind of what I'm imagining for the discussion. But of course, anything that seems relevant in terms of what you're learning in the practice will be useful. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website,